Hi there and welcome to The Leading Conversation with me, Tom Dawson-Scrove and Kyle Brown. Today we're joined by Springbok, Saracens legend, former Stormer and Bulls player and son of Stellenbosch, Skulk Pritz. We all know Skulk, the smiling, energizer bunny who tore up the handbook of hooker player to put his own stamp on rugby. At 37, he won a World Cup winner's medal, having come back into the fold after thinking his time was up. Skulk was not always the favorite of coaches for his ability to challenge the status quo, but he found his way post his move to England in 2009 and really found himself not only as a player, but as a human being. In this chat, he talks emotional intelligence, about the famed Sarri's way of getting the best out of people, and how often coaches get it wrong, when actually it would be easier to get it right. He shares his insights on how he dealt with pressure, and has a refreshing view on the game and on life. This will be our last guest of the series, as next week Kyle and I will do a final podcast of Series 1, where we will answer listener questions and debate some of our learnings from all the guests. So please feel free to send in some questions or insights that you may have. Enjoy this episode. Great, another week, a wet weekend Cape Town, Carl Brown, uh, lovely to see you bud, how have you been, did you have a good weekend with your wife's birthday? Yeah, busy weekend, uh, a lot of cooking, a lot of preparing, um, and I'm, I'm happy that we are through that weekend. Um, bro, I'm actually, I'm, I'm worried that we don't have video for this one because I already see Skulk dancing on the other side of things there, and I wish we could show people all of this. <laughs> <laughs> there he is, there he is, Skulk, Skulk Pritz, it's wonderful to have you uh, on the podcast. I, uh, I said to Kyle beforehand, you know, Skulk's obviously retired now. So he can, he can probably say what he wants to say, but knowing full well that you probably did the same thing when you were a player anyway. Um, so we're flipping pumped to have you and thanks so much for giving your time. So Skulk, I'm going to shoot straight in. You had a long and illustrious career. Can you give us an indication of how Skulk Brits, the human being, changed over time? From the youngster from Cape Town or Stellenbosch, shall I say, all the way to England, back to South Africa. T- tell us tell us what happened. Uh, f- from my perspective, uh, I can look at myself and say that I'm extremely driven through, all, through my whole career. My emotional intelligence when I was younger wasn't that great. And there's certain things that happened in my career that gave me sort of a reflection point and a turning point where uh, I'm not a, in an individual sport. It's not just about stats. It's not just about how many tackles, how many cleans, how many runs you make, but what actually, what, what do you add to your team? Because there's 23 guys now, uh, or in the biggest squad of, for example, the World Cup, 31 guys. What do you add, not just from a rugby perspective, but personality, uh, intellect, all those kind of things, um, to where at the end of my career, I think I was pretty sweet and very comfortable with my skill set and where I am as a person. Where in my 20s, I was extremely selfish and it's all about just me. Why am I not wearing the number two? Should What, what am I doing wrong? Uh, I think you, you start seeing the bigger picture. And I wish I had the same intellect uh, in my early 20s that I had in my <laughs> late 30s. But I guess you only get that through time and experiences and setbacks. And, and yeah. Skulk, the, um, those points of reflection you spoke about, well, I mean, are those something you can, you can chat about? Maybe it'll help younger players identify those moments so that they too can you know, ideally fast track that emotional intelligence so they can become more of the team instead of themselves. 
yeah, in the beginning, of course, like, I guess when you're under 20 or tw- under 21, you represent your country and then you go into senior rugby, but you were always sort of um, there on their about. You think you're the big dog. Then you get to the, to the senior squad and you're just a young pup again. And then you, in my capacity, you outperform from a statistical perspective. You make more tackles, you make more cleans, but you can't understand why you're not being picked. Uh, then there was a couple of things and he pushed the coach quite hard uh, on things and why, why, why am I not being picked? It's all about I. And then uh, I had a uh, sort of a reflection point where uh, John was the captain and he was my opposition. And I mean, I want to play. I don't want to be on the bench or I don't, I want not even be in the stands. And then he's like, okay, what, how many of the guys you play with do you know? How many of the wives do you know? How girlfriends do you know? Kind of thing. What is your value add except of making tackles and runs? You know, mm-hmm. it's not a, just a team thing. And then it sort of sunk in, although slowly I went, okay, fine. You know, this is not just about me. It's about the team. How do I perform um, better? And, and the same as a younger player is great players play well, but legends or guys that is extremely well-valued in a team environment is how well do you make uh, players around you play better? I think if you always look at that, it's not about me, but do the, the prop or the lock or the players around you play better because of you around mm-hmm. you? Do you not want to take the shine? Do you want to rather pass the last ball to the winger or the, the prop to score a try? For whatever the case might be, is do players around you play better? And a lot of times in rugby, it comes down to combinations. And the same thing happened during the World Cup is, are you prepared to serve uh, to the detriment of yourself? And in the long term, you get value out of that. You know, you get respected not by running in the front, but showing your sacrifice and showing that you are prepared to rather carry a bag than wear the number two. But I would always want to wear the number two. But it's not in my hands to then make the decision who wears the number two. Yeah. Like, I try to later in my career, if someone else had picked above me, I want to wear that shirt, but you go to the opposition number two and you go say, good luck, bud. Go kick ass and um, I'm here behind you. How can I help you be better? Because in essence, if the team does better, uh, you do better. And the perception around the team, uh, it's almost our sword with everything. Every team that's successful, you get easier into the World Cup squad. You get easier to become a Springbok or England player or whatever comes with it, the extended benefits that you don't look at, uh, sponsorship deals, money, monetary values, uh, respect, all those kind of things come with a team doing well. Uh, Skulk, you, you, you mentioned the word selfish and then you said, I found I, was, I didn't have emotional intelligence. Was there, was there a specific point where Skulk Brits then turned? into this team guy that in the way you describe it now? Yeah, definitely. At Saracens, uh, my whole mindset about work ethic change, my whole way of um, rotation, uh, honesty, uh, life changed. So uh, I can, there's a couple of stories. So I went over in 2009, of course, I've been taught from a young age, the only thing that matters is winning and never fail. Failure is a complete uh, no-no. 
you know, and then you come to a place where you've got a coach there called Brenner Fenter. Edward Griffiths is there as uh, CEO. And with that, choose investment into uh, in services and time and money. And then you've got Jan Rupert that bought into the company through Remgro way back with Yanni. And then you've got Nigel Ray as, uh, as other investment with Dominic Sylvester taking us over. The first meeting I get to, uh, imagine this here. You've got... They just, in 2008, they just let go about 25 guys or 20 guys. That's renowned as Black Monday. And they've just brought in a lot of different guys. Walsh guys, Italian guys, South African guys. We had to add name tags on on our shirts. To, to That's how the South Africans knew each other. We got there. The first thing they said, guys, you're not allowed to speak Afrikaans in, in this environment. Of course, Afrikaans boys and South Africans want to speak Afrikaans. No Afrikaans. So anyway, we get into the first meeting. There, there's Brendan explaining uh, the vision for the club. And he's going, guys, we're not here to win any games. And I go, oh my gosh, we're going to get pumped. If someone talks about just having a fun time and not winning, we're going to get pumped hard. Secondly, he says, we're all about here to make memories. And I'm going, cool. Okay, this sounds better. And I'm going to tell you what. We're going to treat you unbelievably well. In return, we're going to work unbelievably hard. And I go, okay, okay. I've, I've known in South Africa to hard, work very hard, but not very clever. But guys, we're going to not train four days a week. We're going to train three times a week. And I go, that's not harder. That's less. But we're going to be clever. And so the, the, we spoke about only being 8% at training, but... Everything was stats-based. So they went back, okay, this is how many minutes we're going to train per week. This is how many sessions we're going to do. This is what I want you to have. So there was direct goals in place. And that's how I saw for the first time how to um, work hard but clever. And then they had a rotation policy. Think about that. To tell players, rugby players, that you're going to be rotated is like um, telling someone they're being dropped. Every, every player has experienced, listen, you're going to be rotated this weekend. You're going to have a week off. Next week, you're going to play. Then what happens normally, if the other player plays well, you don't, there's no more rotation. You're just not being picked anymore. And then that's just how it is. If the other player plays badly, you're back in there. Then you're the next best thing. So they literally had a planned rotation, four weeks, five weeks, uh, two months in advance. Where I know I'm going to play three weeks, I'm going to st- or two weeks I'm going to start, one week on the bench, one week off. I can go travel with my wife abroad. So that changed my whole mindset on, 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 on life and failure. I mean, we had Matthew Saeed, the, uh, the guy that wrote 10,000 hours in black box thinking, mm. where failure is embraced. All, all real growth is seen in, in failure, not in winning. I can see if through my experience with Saracens, I'll tell you this one story. We played against Leicester Tigers in our first season. And we planned the whole week. We got everything right. We played on Saturday against Tigers and they gave us a thumping. Uh, I mean, they just dominated us. But the scoreboard wasn't back, but that we got pumped. So we, we, of course, every rugby player is disappointed with losing. After the game, the coach and the CEO, Edward, comes in. Brendan and, and, and Edward comes in, get, shakes their hands. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Irrelevant. They take the emotion out of it. 
of course, we're quite sad. Um, Brendan said, thank you for your effort and your physicality and says goodbye to us. Uh, have a good weekend. Monday morning, what happens normally, we come in into uh, a meeting uh, where normally if you lose the coach, have a proper go to, why didn't you work hard enough? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Came in and sort of, and we were quite uh, sad that Monday. So that's our, our biggest rivals, Tigers. Says, why is everyone sad today? What do you mean we're sad? I said, well, well, we lost this weekend. He said, guys, how important is rugby? Rugby is a small part. The relevance to winning or a rugby game is nothing. I work in a practice where I see people dying every day. Coming, I have to give people bad news. Their kids has got cancer or someone's mom is, is about to die or whatever the case may be. That is bad news. And then he goes to analyzing the game. He says, guys, thank you so much for this weekend. We just got beaten by a better team. Let's learn from this failure. Why are they so good? Why are they doing X, Y, Z? Let's learn from them. And that's pretty much almost the first time that a coach came and said, this team is just better. They're better coached. They've been together longer than we've been. Let's learn from that. The biggest mistake you can make is not learning from failure. Then, then it becomes failure. But if you learn from failure, it is, it is phenomenal. Skog, uh, you, you, you jumped in. I mean, I think just in, in passing over, you mentioned two different things there, which stuck with me that, you know, probably uh, I would have picked up because I've been uh, in the South African sort of environment for a long time that would be looked at, in, from my point of view, as having little digs at, uh, at the current or, or the way that things have been run. You know, failure as, a, as an absolute abomination, like you can't fail, which, again, we know the links to stress and anxiety that that places. Um, and then the way that when you got over there, you said your emotional intelligence turned around, you know, just on the approach to people um, and the way that they deal with people and the, the way that they handle performance. Um, you know, what, what kind of lessons can the South African setups learn from those kind of things? And, and have you seen that being implemented around the South African rugby environment? You know, I think besides the Springboks, because the Springboks seem to have got that quite well in their, in their small unit. But is it something that could be done better at the franchises? For sure. I mean, my, my experience going, uh, coming back from Saracens is have a, a factual-based analysis on your, for example, training. It's not a feeling. You can only have so many minutes, so many meters. You've got all the data now to accumulate and work out how many minutes you need to be on the pitch, how many contact sessions you have to have. It's not just about a feeling of a coach standing there and going, okay, guys, I don't think you fit enough. Run. That's what normally happened when I was younger. Just run. Mm. Now you can statistically look at each player. You can work out if they fit or not. It's not a perception. The same thing with, with, with physicality. And the thing is, when you start looking at, I can, for example, for myself, look at myself. So two things that I can judge or compare myself to is, did I work hard enough or prepare well enough for the weekend? And then all, if I've done that well, the only thing I can measure on a Saturday, there's a lot of um, variables that can happen on a Saturday, but, but did I bring physicality and did I bring work ethic? That's the two things that I've got direct control of. And that's the things I always um, judge myself on, is work ethic and, and, and um, physicality. And the other things, you know, sometimes you're just knockable. 
Um, so the, the, other, the other thing that they brought in at Saracens way back was effort error and skill error. So imagine this. So um, sitting there at the coaches, the guys, okay, guys, the two things, we're looking at two things, effort error and skill error. So I'm like, okay, what's the difference? So they said, okay, skill error. Skull, if you throw the ball in skew, it's not your fault. But what? No, it's, it's, it's the coach's fault. I go, wow. And if I knock the ball, no, it's the coach's fault. If I don't work hard enough or don't get up quick enough, you can directly measure that. That's an effort error. I'm going to come hard on you. If you don't get in line quick enough, that's everything is within your reach. Mm. That is effort errors. But here is the catch of it. If I keep on throwing the ball in skew, I can't play hooker. So it's, it is my responsibility and the coach's responsibility to make sure that on Monday morning when I get back to training, that I throw 200 throws onto a post or do catching passes with the coach. Because he's, what's the coach's role is to make me a better rugby player. For me, as a rugby player, what's my role is to bring the effort and the, uh, to, or the work ethic to start to learn how to catch a ball or to throw in it properly. If those two things are mixed, I can't be a professional rugby player. So I think that is quite vital to know whose responsibility is what. And especially from the coach's perspective, the coach is there to strategically decide, like a CEO, what game pattern we play. And sometimes, like Rassie said, for example, against New Zealand on our first game, come into the change room on a, after the game, or I can't remember, was the change room or... In the first meeting, he said, guys, I, technic I technically got this wrong. I got the week wrong. I got the X and Y, Z wrong. It's my responsibility. I'm sorry. But how many times, Carl, do you ever hear a coach come and say, sorry, guys, I stuffed up. It was my fault. Mm -hmm. No, it's always the player or whatever. And at the, at that, you get a lot of respect from coaches. If, if your leader goes, listen, I made a fault. So everybody can make a fault. And it's, it, just, it just happens. I'll tell you what, with, with uh, I mean, you say how many times you've seen that. I only had two, you know, I was a long time in the sevens that I had two coaches. And, and under Neil, interestingly enough, was one of those coaches that would set out a game plan and you'd say, listen, you guys stick to this bloody game plan. If there's something wrong with it, it doesn't work. I'll, I'll stick my hand up and say, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. And it, it was only when, when, and that way you could figure out who to take responsibility of things. Because if we didn't stick to that plan, then we're responsible for it. If we stuck to the plan and the plan didn't work, then Neil would say, listen, you know, my problem, we got that one wrong. And that was refreshing. That, that built up a lot of trust in the coaching. Mm. And, and that's exactly it, trust. So the thing is, with, firstly, if you've got a rotation policy to trust, so that's what Rusty, when he brought in in 2018, and the same with Saracens, he said, listen, guys, you're going to play X, Y, and Z, these type of games, and I'm going to play certain players. I know all of you want to play uh, Sodom this weekend or play this game, but you're not mm. going to. But I promise you, if you do this and this, you'll play that time. And for example, people don't know that we were very strict on a World Cup plan against Wales, for example. This was the plan for Wales because we've lost four games in a row before that against Wales. We're going to play extremely boring game plan. This is the rules. If, uh, this is the game plan. If we don't make it, I'll take responsibility. Everybody wants to run with the ball. But against Wales, you can't. Andre and Fafa and Valia had to play a very strategic kicking game. Then people think we changed so much to the final game. We only had six days of turnaround. We only had two training sessions. We trained some, changed some technical things. But in essence, we didn't change much. 
So it, it's exactly what you said. If a coach is, is um, prepared to take responsibility, it's easier then for the players to take responsibility and trust. Because I, I've seen it before where the coaches comes in with game plan, game plan X and then you see game plan, well, it happens in the game, we lose the game and then he goes, well, I don't understand why this, this player didn't play according to the game plan and he did exactly what the coach said. Skulk, you, you speak a lot about coaches and I get the sense that um, you, you're a kind of guy who likes to challenge and question things. You wouldn't just blindly, you know, if someone says go into the road, you wouldn't just go into the road. Um, I, I, I also remember a quote where Jake White said, no, well, he didn't pick Skulk Brits. He, he heard he was a guy that didn't train on Mondays. Um, you, you clearly remember that too. Um, Very good and I can pick my airline, SAA or BA. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I know, I know Brendan Fenter quite well, and I know Brendan, uh, and I know why he does it, so this isn't a criticism, but he loves to put people in boxes, inverted commas, like you're going to do this, and you're going to be exceptionally good at that. What was the balance like for you through your career of being put in a box and conforming versus expressing yourself and doing it your own way and challenging? Um, probably that's why well there's two reasons why I didn't play more test matches is one I didn't work enough work hard enough when I was younger uh, I studied and I didn't gym as much as I should I, and I had a bit of a social element to it uh, and then I didn't want to conform I did not want to play uh, a game uh, in the 2000s where you wanted a bigger bigger hooker that just scrums line out more kind of thing. And for me, it was, I play rugby for the main reason of having fun. I never started playing rugby to make money. For me, it's beating the opposition. And why should I conform to something that is not my strength? So my strength is the way I play. I could have played another position, but I love hooker. Uh, from, from a questioning perspective, yes, uh, the Afrikaner culture is, and I guess is to an extent where you don't challenge authority. You say, yawam, donkeyworm, and off you go. Mm. And I think that is one of the reasons why we struggle in South Africa, is to truly believe in something, you have to, believe, uh, you have to question it. And, and if you then believe in it and you follow the leader or you part of the, uh, the group or arrows pointing in that direction, you can followed strongly with your heart, mind, and soul kind of thing. Mm. And that was shot down quite a lot when I was younger. Um, and th that's just my personality. Some coaches didn't like it. Um, I could question Brendan, and we can debate things that I, I loved. Uh, and unfortunately, I have to take more time. And a lot of coaches aren't comfortable with their technical knowledge uh, and don't like to be challenged. Uh, unfortunately, once, I, once again, I said uh, earlier that I learned how to challenge coaches. Maybe in the beginning was too much openly uh, and not privately, uh, where I should have been probably one of my younger years, rather ask why, not in front of everyone, but probably privately, because mm. I'm the new kid on the block. I still want to know when I'm 20 or my 38, why do you do something a certain way? 
And just because you're 38 and you've got years of experience, then you can ask the questions. I guess when you're 20, you should keep your mouth shut and sit in the corner. It's kind of, kind of the attitude of a lot of the coaches. Um, but I think if I could change things, I would have just asked things privately when I was younger, but still challenged the coach. Mm. Um, yeah, so from that perspective, uh, so I've covered uh, why I challenge coaches. So I want to believe in things. Uh, I've been put in boxes my whole life. Um, if you play a loose game, then you lose hooker. When you play a tight game with the game sometimes needed, then uh, you're not as flash as you should be. So you can't, you can't satisfy anyone. Yes. You can't win any time. But what I can do is earn the respect of my, my teammates, and that was always the aim. Mm. Skalk, I wanted to chat about labels. Um, I mean, you, Tom, you were alluding to the fact that like some some coaches put players in boxes and things, and um, I, I, you know, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people would have labeled you as somebody who did like Im- like amazingly impactful work off the bench. But the fact of the matter is, they they still see you as this this impact player. And I know we've we've sort of touched on it before, but. And you even mentioned at the beginning about you always wanted to start. You know, how did you deal with that? Where you, you have this burning desire to start every game, but you're having to do with do do with the uh, you know the backup spot, the replacement spot, and and doing the work from the bench. Well, I think it's exactly what you said previously. It's 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 a label. Uh, it's things that are focused on what you can change and can't change. It is yeah. uh, if if you start trying to change people's mind by your action then uh, or by how can I say this for me it was if it wasn't in my control to be picked or not picked but what I did have control is, is my mentality over being picked or not picked um, uh, so a lot of times I can only try and show the coach uh, how much I can do in let's say 20 minutes what the other worker does in 60 minutes and then I give him proof for this, but then he, it, it's, uh, it's sort of, <laughs> it shows the proof that, it, well, a lot of times the coach will say, well, look how amazing you're in 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh. But you're great in 20 minutes, so we're going to keep you to 20 minutes. Yeah, but, but that's, that is later in, in my career, I went, I can't change this. What I can do is then, if he picks me on the bench, I'm going to be then the best 20-minute player in my life. <laughs> And if it picks me for 60 minutes, then I'm going to be the best player in that part as well. You know, it's, and, and once again, it goes back to why do I play rugby? And I only late in life got to the conclusion rugby is only a small part of my life. My wife, my kids, and everything is, is much more important. My family is more, much more important in this game. This is only a vehicle to show the world what I can do and for me to have enjoyment. There's so much more than that. And when I came to that realization, that even if on a bad day, everyone's got a bad game. Um, I can get home and the boys and wife is happy. My wife is not into rugby at all. She's a duchy. Uh, anyway, so if I can get, get home and my boys are just so happy to see me, then, then rugby is a small part. That doesn't mean I don't practice as hard or don't try as hard on the weekend. It just gives, gave me relevance to life. So I, I want to continue on that bad day thing because I actually said this to Tom. I want to, like everybody as the you know this would be now your second label that people give you. This guy smiles all the time. What on earth does a bad day look like in Skulk Brits's life? Like what happens when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Um, it's, it's it's actually quite easy to um, 
for me, even on losing, because I don't see failure as failure. But the times that I really had bad days was one when I wasn't physical enough or when I wasn't trying as hard, not getting up or uh, not running for a cross stack. Or then, then it is, I need to look at myself. That was a lot of the times where I was, well, okay. And it's called sometimes being a South African boy that just loves surfing warm weather, running out at Saracens uh, at Ellen's Park and the snow is coming down um, and it's cold, man. It's like minus two degrees and you're running around. You can't feel your fingers. Your nose is frozen off. You can't feel your teeth, uh, your, your, your feet. Uh, th- then you sometimes question why are you playing this game? <laughs> but that's a lot of times when I take back, it's not I'm disappointed in myself and then I would be disappointed for losing respect of my teammates. Yeah. Because that's, that's the biggest thing. It's, respect is so difficult to gain, um, especially uh, from teammates, but it's so easy to lose. And, oh. uh, and that, that was always the push. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's having fun, and even with a smile, trying my best, being physical. And, and of course, nobody, nobody's got their best game every weekend. It just yeah. happens. And, and sometimes you try your best, and that's happened too, where you, you try so hard to impress and so hard, especially after injuries, coming back and, uh, and then you just try too hard and cause stuff-ups as well. And then it's quite nice when the players next to you know your intention, just picks you up and say, Scala, just have fun. Yeah. Forget about trying to impress or trying to do too much. Tom, I mean, we had, we had Bobes on two weeks ago and he literally said the exact same thing about not seeing failure as failure. Exact same thing, you know, and and because yeah. we asked, uh, I mean, Scott, we asked Bob's and Gubani Bob, like, how how is it possible that you you're happy all the time? And the, and he said it word for word. I don't see failure as failure. It was a framing thing for him, and how he was able to change his mind on, you know, you know what sort of unsuccessful looks like. Yeah. Scott, um, there are people out there who play rugby, who work in your business, um, who work in lots of different businesses, who would watch you on the weekend and go like, sheesh, look at this guy's just a bundle of joy, you know? Like, they'll take an extra sip of their beer when they watch you play, you know? Um, did you ever experience in any game some proper doubts or proper anxiety uh, that you were able to overcome at any stage? Or if you didn't, was there anyone that you helped overcome that anxiety and that difficulty? I think injuries, uh, of course, when I had a, sh- uh, a knee reconstruction, um, so I had an ACL, MCL, PCL, and lateral meniscus that I did in 2014, uh, sure. uh, just before the World Cup. And I really wanted to, Hanukkah said, if I'm ready 2015, I'll have a shot to making the World Cup squad. Then I was 32, never thought there would be a 2019 as well, or 33, I can't remember. Um, and I had, I saw Saracens were amazing, sent me to a guy in the States at the Tiger Woods knee. But after five months and two weeks, I will play my first game again. Yeah. Now, you know, with the, with the knee reconstruction, that... Um, you'll only actually be firing at 18 months, not at five months and two weeks. Mm. And then that was definitely doubt where my skill set is being quick, uh, creating um, opportunities for guys outside me where you have to do it another way. 
and maybe then taking a, a more leadership role and playing a tighter game, not because you can't, well, you, you can't play the other way. So that was the doubt is can I then still add value to my team, even being at 70% or 80% of myself. And luckily I had a coach then that with Mark McCorsett's color, even if you played 80%, I want you on the pitch. Mm. And that takes, that's so nice to have a coach that goes, even if you subpar Skulk, the value add is more than having you at 100%. Now, rightly or wrongly, that gave me confidence then to go play. And of course, then you add value in a, a, a lot in a different way. Um, I never thought about injuries when I was younger. The older I got, um, uh, the fear before games was the only thing that I feared is, um, I think it's, I never had it before, before I had kids, only after kids I started having a fear of breaking a neck or doing something like that, that I can't play with the kids. Um, but for me, it was always as soon as I run into the pitch and I saw these massive blokes in front of me, I go, can't wait. You know, for, was, for me, the bigger, the better kind of thing. And there's a lot of times that I got smashed the living crap out of me, but it was fun. You know, it's, it's fun getting up on a Sunday morning. And that's what I miss is competing. Like I hated training uh, because I hated, um, you know, just playing against your own mates. So that was my experience especially in South Africa, Tom, where the guys would now coming back. We had at the Bulls, uh, we would stuff the living crap out of each other on a Tuesday or Thursday training session. And I go, wow, these guys are next level. And then Saturday, there's nothing of it. And I just couldn't understand it. Why would you smash your teammates when you don't smash the opposition? What, what would you put that down to? Ineffective management. So, for me, it's training sessions that's too long. Uh, there must be always a, a rule of engagement uh, during training sessions. And sometimes in a training session, yes, but you can't do it three days a week. You just can't. The body can't sustain playing three matches. That, well, maybe the sevens boys can, but uh, the 50-man uh, the game, you can't sustain the physicality and long training sessions. And I think that's where... Rassi was quite clever, or Alad actually was very clever on how he managed the team. As, and especially if you have to manage younger guys and older guys differently. Then you have to manage a guy like Peter Steff, for example. He's young, but or no, he's not young anymore. But the amount of contact you do on weekend, you have to personalize every program to make sure that you get the most out of Saturdays. And Saturdays is where you show cost, not on a Monday or Tuesday where you play against each other. I mean, it was our first session at the Bulls, for example, was I think an hour and 50 minutes. Um, and the guys, uh, it was hot. And the guys, we claimed Falky, what do you call it? The <laughs> stump, and the guys were smashing each other. This is me coming back. And in a session, you can't challenge the coach or anything. And like after around 50 minutes, he goes, yes, Kala, this was a great session. I went, coach, this was terrible. <laughs> we could have stopped after 40 minutes. We lost intensity. We increased the, uh, the probability of uh, injuries. injuries. And it's, for me, it's, it's, we've got so much to learn, but we have to have, and that's still what I'm going to try to take into the real world. Even if you're the best, 
try to always have a growth mindset and always try to learn from other people. Know what your strength is. And, and for me, it, it's, if you look at South African rugby in general, we've got amazing athletes. We do, I think there's a lot of room for improvement to structures and coaches. Scala, you, 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 sorry, Carl, I don't want to let Skalk off the hook here. Um, there, there's a few things I want to ask you about the Springboks and the World Cup and what have you, but you, you mentioned I, I looked at those big guys and I wanted to just run at them. You played until you were 38. Um, you, you know, you went off, there was that beautiful vision of you bowing to the Japanese public, you know, from the crowd. Is there an element of showman in Skog Brits that kept him going, that kept him going? Was that what kept you going all those years? I, I, what kept me going is, is the challenge. That, that is never to be fancy or cute or... Um, but for me, it was always about challenging the opposition. I always like, uh, always, for example, scrumming against Pelotta now. By far the best scrummage I've ever scrummed again. But he was known to be amazing. For me, it, it was always sidestepping uh, and creating opportunities and having fun. No, not yet. <laughs> uh, my boss asking me when I'm going home. Um, <laughs> So for, so for me, it was always, of course, I want to show cost. And that's what people see. But the weirdest thing was, is being at Saracens and the guys go, forget about what your skill set is. Skala, I paid your salary for a skill set, but I want to see you what you do off, uh, without the ball. You get complimented for things that people don't expect. That was the weirdest thing for me. But yes, there's always a bit of a show cost in it. I mean, one of the other things that seems to be uh, coming like coming out here is for, for me that I feel like I'm picking up is a bit of an underdog thing. You know, you, you seem to want to, like people told you, you'd probably be better off at a different position, but you're like, bugger it. I like hooker and that's what I want to do. That's where I've come from. And then every other time where you, where you had the chance to challenge somebody, you embrace that challenge and you take it, you know. And I mean, is there a bit of a, do you feel a bit of an underdog story in your life? Yeah, I mean, I'm the only child, so there's no brother that really bullied me. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> being being younger and always challenging authority, I got beat up a lot um, as a kid. And that's probably why I started wrestling when I was younger, um, because people thought I was arrogant. Or, But uh, from my perspective, I wasn't arrogant. I, maybe a little bit. I was challenging, why, why should I go get someone a plate that when respect is earned not just by your age or by your uh, or by who you are uh, and i think yeah. through my life i've never tried to put myself on top of someone or bully someone why should someone bully me and that was actually the case always in my life is um yeah I, i'm not good with authority that i that i would say and that is my weakness is i don't like authority i, I want to be respected for my work ethic and where i sit sits in life, uh, how I treat you. I mean, you say weakness, but I mean, it also, I'm, I'm pretty sure that spurs on your curiosity and your drive to challenge things and improve them at the same time. You know, like when, you, when you're challenging a coach, it's not, just, uh, it's not just purely challenging them for the sake of the challenge. It's uh, you, you're challenging a, maybe a coaching staff or a team member because you want to improve them. You want to get them better. And, you know, not, not just so that you can push their buttons. Yeah, definitely that. And, uh, and that's why with younger players, 
I, I would make them feel as at home as I could, you know, and never try to treat them like a junior player. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I thought when it, it's, you, you truly see a guy's personality, not when he's down, but when he's got power. And that, that's my always thought process from, from a young age is, is uh, I, when I'm older or in a position of power, you know, when you stand at six is how the matrix treat you. And then I thought when I'm a matric, I'm not going to be that, uh, I can't say this on this podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to be that, uh, that D head that, that had a go at me. I, I want to be, I just want to be me. You know, if, uh, yeah. Anyway, so from my perspective, it's always value the person on how he treats you and what, what kind of value sets he's got. Mm. I, I must say there's some, there's two real cool things. I mean, there's a lot of cool things I picked up. One is that what I've taken from you in this last 10 minutes, Kala, is that you can be a fierce competitor, but still with joy in your heart. And I've come across a lot of fierce competitors and there's a lot of, there's a lot of intensity, but there's almost a lot of sorrow and pain and difficulty around being competitive. And I love the, the marriage there. And what I've also taken is, despite being a guy who is an individual and what have you, what the coach says and enables for you has a massive impact on you. You know, and, I, and, I, and, and the fact that you learned that and respect that is, I, I, it's a wonderful bit of awareness that, that, that seems to have grown in you. So I wanted to ask just a couple of questions about the box as we begin to wrap up Skog. Um, the leadership model of the Springboks. You had Rassi Erasmus and his coaching group. Clearly, Rassi strong in that space. You had Sia as the captain, but clearly a strong for Merlin, Pollard, Brits, etc., etc. How did that all come together? And how did you keep each other accountable as a leadership collective through 2019 into the World Cup? And the major pressure points. I, I guess it is easy. It comes on no decades, really. I, I've said it now. Um, is is you literally had Rassi there that was from his perspective. It's not just him, but the coaching staff. Not at one stage saying what we don't have all the answers. When you've got a coach that says sometimes honestly, I, I don't know. Let's try this or try why. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, let's see how it goes. It's quite nice. And then if, from a strategic perspective, they, they represent, for example, present the, the plan for the week. And, and you as players got input into that plan. And then, of course, yeah, Tia, that's our captain, but he was a captain that embraced other opinions. He embraced other leaders. And that's very important. Where a lot of the times uh, introverted leaders, not that Tia's an introvert, but uh, is very good leaders because they don't they don't want to take credit um, uh, and that's what I've experienced way back with Steve Borthwick that he was an introverted leader and I, now I know there's a lot of different ways I always thought growing up you had to have a front chopina kind of leader that a guy that's vocal and loud and you know uh, how can I say? War, war speeches yeah, and yes, stuffing each other but, up. Yeah. yeah, but there's so many different leaderships and you don't always have to run in the front to be a leader. And, and that's a big thing that I've experienced even in the Springbok group is you had quite high EQ uh, from a rugby perspective, from a team perspective. And, and for us, it was uh, Rassi pounded hard on um, entitlement. If you've got people that's not entitled, 
then you can go far away. Uh, so not entitlement, hard work, hard work ethic, and they disciplined you, you and they, they, they could EQ then, then it makes quite a nice group to work for. So from that perspective, it wasn't that it was set out. Maybe it was set out as a bigger plan from Rassi's perspective, but he brought in a lot of guys for their expertise and everyone had sort of a, um, their add on, you know, for, for Jesse with defense or mm. Vili from a kicking perspective. And even the younger guys, we value their opinion. Because it is important what they add. Because at 38, I don't understand, for example, after a game where people don't want to have a beer, they want to play PUBG. I don't. I didn't grow up in that. Uh, what the hell is that? PUBG is it's a game. Tom showing his age there. So for me, it's, it's, for example, a guy that I've played along for years is called Berger. I mean, I always sat next to him before Game of the Storm was talking not game-related things before game. And he can make that switch like that. And certain players don't like doing that. But that was my personality. And then after game, Skog don't want to talk about... Uh, don't want to put on his phone or Twitter or Instagram where other players want to do it. We want to just sit and have a beer and talk about getting smashed or what this guy did or not do. Mm. And there's a lot of dark arts going on. Mm. And for me, it's, I don't have that experience with the younger guys have. I've got a different set of, um, th- not demands, that's the wrong thing, um, things that I want to do after game. So for me, it's, it's understanding that as well. And for example, leadership at 38 is different than leadership at a guy 22. So it's listening to the younger players as well. And I think that's what Rassi uh, and Saracens got, got right is actually having a diverse group with all needs and then trying to make the best of that. Tom, maybe this is a question for you to answer. I think in South Africa, we, like like you were saying, Skog, we've got this image of a leader and, and what they, they're supposed to bring, you know. And now we, we know clearly that there's a, a massive spectrum of leaders out there. What's the, what's the first step as, you know, let's say like put on your your society member, your community leadership member, what's the first thing that this, that society can do to start accepting and embracing other kinds of leadership? Is that for me or for Scott? That's for you, Tom. Uh, okay. I'll tell you, it's very simple. And I heard this on the radio this morning. It's something I've long believed is we still in South Africa and maybe the world over, we still look for heroes and villains. So we want one leader who's a hero or one leader or one person who's a villain. And we're not seeing collectives. And I think if you look at the power of teams and organizations that do well, yes, there might be someone who's the poster boy or poster girl, but it's collectives of people. And we heard it when, when, when Sia interviewed us. You know, Skog, Sia interviewed, interviewed us when we interviewed him. Sia admitted that he was on the field against England, 20 points behind, going, I don't know what to do. But he had the belief to go to Dwayne or to Andre Pollard and say, can I help? And that collective of leadership for me, and it's been confirmed by some of the stuff you've said today, is where we need to start shifting our minds, Carl. Otherwise, we're going to, no one has the power to do everything. And if they do, they'll stuff it up. Just, just on that, Carl, I think a leader is, must be prepared to serve. If, if he is truly prepared to serve without getting credit for it, then we, 
the leader in my eyes has got already uh, already went a long way. So I mean, if you think about leaders, everything in movies is like Braveheart. The guy must be in the front. He must, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But that's just once again, that's my opinion. For me, it's it's you get different guys like a Joe Fonique was very vocal and he did the Euro uh, or the Braveheart speeches. That was fantastic. But they. You don't have to wear always a captain band to be a leader uh, or, or even inspire guys next to you. Yeah. yeah, it's something that you seem to have epitomized over your career. And I think that's what, you know, the, one of the topics we wanted to deal with today, and I think we've covered that quite nicely, is your ability to lead in the background and lead quietly and, and serve as much as possible without the titles and the labels and the badges and all that nonsense. So, yeah, it's been, it's been very lucky to dig into that. So I'll just one thing yeah. on this, what is, what is quite nice is if you look at a team, so I can only count for team, you normally want to surround you with people that is similar to you, right? Because then it's just easier to manage, same viewpoints. But the strength, only what I've learned later in life, the more diverse your group mm. is, the stronger your group is, the more input, the more diversity you get, but the secret to that is actually embracing the diverse people the diverse, being yeah. different. So it's, it's actually something we we dealt with on this about like something that I spoke about with the sevens team. It was exactly something I learned over the last 10 years is that the diversity is the power. But only once you start understanding each other properly and you start embracing those differences is that's when the, the diversity becomes the true competitive edge. Correct. Scala, last or one of the last questions here. You, 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 um, I've heard a lot of uh, coaches and teams talk about using your leadership and embracing your leadership and the collective intelligence. You then also hear when that team does badly, people from the outside will say the players have too much power. You know, the, the coach is being run over by the players. You've played at a few clubs now or unions and teams. What does the balance look right? What does the balance look like when the players have the right amount of power? Inverted commas. I, I think there there is no uh, meter or indicator to say when it's too much or too little. There must be a trust between, for me, between leadership or the leader corp and the and the team and the coaches. For me, it comes down to the following: if the bucket eventually stops at the coach the coach has got the final say it's not a democracy it is the t- if, if the team loses the coach gets sacked so eventually he has to get inputs from all his leaders but eventually he makes a final decision and sometimes uh, in my career coaches said okay go uh, even when he disagrees with us and he goes I trust you to do execute why. And if we failed, then it's the player's responsibility to go on, on a Saturday or Monday and say, guys, I stuffed up here. I said we must, for example, in the scrum do X, Y, Z. I was wrong. So once again, it's taking responsibility, then taking the consequences and then learning from it. Because uh, unfortunately with a younger team, then it becomes quite difficult because you've got egos that's in the way. Um, where if, when it's a bit older, you can manage that much better. And of course, it is a nightmare when there's no certainty from a board perspective to the coach, where the coach can be sacked 
uh, every Saturday. It's just yeah. uncertainty in, a, in an environment like sport is detrimental to the success of a team. A coach or a board needs to give the coach a certainty that he's got a job for X amount of time to perform. The same with a player. A player don't, if you hang an axe over a player's head, he may well perform once or twice, but in the long term, you won't get the best out of that player. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one, and I'll wrap up now. I heard of a coach who's currently coaching. He said he doesn't want a leadership group because the only value he sees in a leadership group is that they'll be the, they'll be the people who get him fired. And I thought, shucks, this, this guy's not going to win. <laughs> it might work for a while, but it's very narrow-minded. Skylar, you've been unbelievable. Um, we always ask the same, same question to everyone to finish off. You have 60 seconds to give a presentation. What would be the contents of that presentation? Laugh. Work balance. Interesting. That's new. That's a that's a good one. We haven't had anyone like that. Yeah, it, it's it's. I can't. I'm learning on the go, but for me, uh, is the balance between being successful from a from a financial perspective. So that's where people mostly measure success in a very material world, but yet we don't have valuable. Uh, relationships with our kids why do you have something that you don't want a relationship with and for me it, it's just for me I want to be successful from a work perspective but not to the detriment of my relationship with my wife or my kids I don't want to be at the age of 60 or 65 and go I've got I've, I have all the successes in life but I don't have a wife and I don't have a kids to, that I can phone tomorrow or today. That, that for me is true value. Awesome. Scott, thank you so, so, so much for your time. Carl, thank you so much. It was awesome to chat to you, um, get a little bit more insight about the man behind the smile uh, and the man who I think many people admire and will continue to admire for what you did on and off the field. So thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Tom, Carl, thank you guys. Have a great day. Scott Fritz, Carl Brown, as a former captain of South Africa in the sevens format, what was your take on a guy who captained South Africa once? <laughs> Bru, um, what a fascinating conversation. So many great stories. And uh, what, I'm, uh, what I'm concerned about is that I really don't want players to have to take, what, 16 years to learn what he learned. Like he, he has learned so much that what, what many people have learned in the theory, he's learned through practical application his entire career. And he's got massive depth and insight into the workings of a team and the leadership structures and just how to treat people to get the best out of them. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you know, I always in my involvement at UCT over the years, I've always said to people, I said, the guys who have made it leaving UCT in terms of professional rugby are the guys who fully bought into UCT when they were there, which means they were selfless in their approach. And I got the sense, and I, even thinking back to Gary Kirsten's uh, podcast, the, it seems like the more selfless you can be while still driven, the more value you'll then get out of your own career. And I learned it from Sia, I've learned it now from Gary, now from Scott, and it's just hitting me in the face, that, that selflessness. And look, I also enjoyed his ad admission as to how imp important the coach is in creating that environment um, and listening to the players. The story about the, the one hour 50 practice was, uh, was amusing for a, for a coach. <laughs>
I am. I, I was quite keen to reaffirm that uh, your, your your mantra in uh, democracy is overrated. Eh? That that's definitely going to become it. a slogan that we're going to put on like a Twitter feed somewhere. We're going to have whole Twitter account to democracy being overrated. It so is. It so is. No, Carl. Well, thank you. I mean, we. So next week is our final episode in this series um, of the leading conversation, which has been fascinating. And you and I are going to be alone. We're just going to interrogate each other and debrief these fourteen unbelievable episodes that we've had. Um, what we really would like is people who have been listening. If you've got any questions for us, for Carl and I, from things you've heard, things we might have said, things our guests might have said, please send them through to us on the so- on social networks. Um, we will bring in some of the best questions into our conversation next week and aim to make it a massively stimulating conversation. So thanks for listening so far and we really, really, really would value your questions. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to see if people disagree with some of the concepts that, that uh, our guests have thrown around. I mean, not everybody's, uh, these are generally opinions. So if you have a, a differing opinion, that would be awesome to hear so we can discuss that and maybe debate it a little bit on the next show absolutely thanks carl awesome, bud. have a good evening